Hey, sorry to interrupt, but before we get going, this 3CR podcast has an important public service announcement. Currently, we're running our annual Radiothon, where we ask for your donations to keep community broadcasting alive. Your donation will make sure that the media stays in the hands of the community where it belongs. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash donate, and with that done, I hope you enjoy your show. Wednesday Breakfast acknowledges that we broadcast on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Burrung people of the Kulin Nation. We pay respect to their elders, past, present and emerging, and acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nation peoples in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement. We recognise that sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty was never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Oh, yeah. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, friends. Good morning, everyone. You are listening to Wednesday Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio. Huge shout-out to the show just before us, Earth Matters. Thank you so much, folks, for really great Enviro news and interviews and views. and um, Fade-out song today. Ah, uh, yes, <laughs> that's right. Um, so, good morning, everyone. It is Wednesday the 19th of June. My name is Will. I'm Adwin. And I'm Rob. And... Uh, Happy Wednesday. Happy Wednesday. We've got a solid team starting to emerge here. It's exciting. Yeah. Yeah, um, So how has the week been? It's been... I can't believe it's been a week. (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, yeah, no, it's been been all right. I've still got got a few exams to go. Ooh. Still in that part of the world. Student. Still student. Student (laughs) thing. Yeah. Right, yeah. I'm seeing people on on Twitter sort of announcing that they finished their exams and It's not not fair. It's not fair on me, but... But it's just Wednesday. Yeah. <laughs> what are you talking about? It's not exciting. It's no time. longer Wednesday for them. It's sleep day. Mm. Ah, yeah. The rest yeah. of the holidays is just mind switch off. I think that's one useful thing about mm. um, institutionalized education and being in that pocket of society, like mm-hmm. being a student, is that it really is like when you get a holiday, you get a holiday. Mm. You get a solid holiday. Like I watch my mum go on holidays yeah. for a working, cl- right. you know full-time worker, and it's kind of like, uh, I've got two weeks off, but the rest, you know, 50 away yeah. doing work, hmm. where, where I get like a month off, and I'm wow. just like, I mm. have literally, like, the mm. days do not matter anymore. <laughs> I have ascended time. Mm. Must so be nice, must be nice. Yeah, sorry, Will, just <laughs> rub it in here, but um, it, it's, uh. I don't know, it's, it's, an entr- it's an interesting, like, like part of your life where you're just kind of like, ah. Oh. And you kind of realise you're never going to have as much holidays Absolutely. ever yep. again. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. Which well, is with why the I exception of people who work in academia and people who work in fields that require them to be using their brains to that sort of analytical level at a constant yeah. t- pace, I feel like you're doing a lot of mental work that I'm, for example, not doing <laughs> work for certain. Um, I think we like to yeah. convince ourselves we are. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting. You okay. pick up skills everywhere, though, I suppose. This is true. I mean, yeah. I think I've learnt just as much from 3CR as I've learnt any, in any ed- education place I've been. We. Uh, so, how's your week been, Rob? My week's been good, or it's been studying. Yes, but, yes. But uh, that's, that's pretty much the extent of my week. That's it. Uh, it's, pr- it's a pretty boring week, uh, to be honest. Okay, but sure. How about sure. yours? Uh, I had the weekend off, mm-hmm. and as a person who works on weekends, it was so weird being available to my friends on the weekend. Mm. It was amazing. Um, it's going to be a bit 
tighter with money for the next yep. little while. Um, weirdly, yeah, I think it's just because we're heading into weekend, um, mm. winter and I work in a sort of tourism-related type thing, and so um, less. there's less work going. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it was it was so good to be... Um, like, I, it sort of makes me understand, like, I definitely don't have the same level of trouble in my life, but people who work on sociable hours, like shift workers, mm. it's tough. It's That's hard. another reason why it's tough, not just the sleep thing, but also just not being part of... The kind um, of the, the, the everyday. Or like yeah. The, everyone on the, on the yeah, yeah. Unless, yeah. Unless everyone in your social group is doing the same shift work, then it's a bit tr- tricky for sure. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Are you... Aiden, you've finished um, everything as well, haven't you? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. yeah. So I'm, I'm kind of free hey. looking for a job, though. So uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's my, that's my education for the next Nice. Okay. <laughs> um, so our show. Yeah. yeah. We've, got, we've got stuff. Um, our first interview <laughs> is going to be with some, <laughs> so, some people from um, the uh, Migrant Workers Centre. Um, mm-hmm. If you haven't heard of the Migrant Workers Centre, then stay tuned, 7.30. We're going to be speaking to them about... Uh, the conditions that migrant workers uh, face, uh, some of their particular challenges, mm. and how the Migrant Workers Centre may or may not be able to help you. Um, and so that's that's what we're going to be talking about at 7.30. But then after that, 7.45? 7.45, we've got Pat from the Australian Fair Trade and Investment Network. Ooh. And she's going to be coming on to talk about a forum that's being held, uh, which is a public forum, which is all about the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership. Now, we'll get a bit more into what that is, but it's mm. basically a proposed trade agreement within mm. uh, kind of like the East a- sorry, the Asian region. Australia is part of it, it's a participating member, ah. and the idea of it's um, helping out with free trade agreements within the kind of negotiations. But um, yeah, she's going to be coming on and talking to us about that. That's really interesting. I'm looking forward to that. Mm, I um, am too. <laughs> I, I, especially because um, I read this on Twitter. <laughs> um, non-news source. But anyway, um, yeah. how there's the, the sort of a sense that uh, these trade forums and trade discussions are made boring on purpose. Mm. Yeah. So that um, so we really need someone in to help us pick it apart. Absolutely. So and that we c- we're able to understand it a bit closer. And yeah, you know. and Rob was making the point before actually when we we're discussing this. Mm. Um, it, it's not like it's yeah, as you said, it's not trending. Mm. Like it's it's, <laughs> it's nowhere really, in the main news. Yeah, and that's it's one really of the things um Pat was stressing is the fact that it's it's so hushed up and silent. Yeah. There's only a few things we relatively know, mm. okay. but of course, economy. And trade deals have a huge effect on everything we do. So, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> anyway. Totally. Um, it, was, it, was, it was kind of concerning that the first two pages to come up were A, a Wikipedia page, and B, the government page, and there was, like, no news yeah. articles on it. Yeah. Right. Yep. Maybe yep. because it's so boring. Maybe. It is a little, it is a little bit boring. But important. And so but that's why we're talking important. about 7.45. Absolutely. Then at 8 o'clock, I'm speaking to Tamina Pitt, who is a um, computer engineering student and also a... Uh, uh, someone who's working in indigenous uh, self-determination in online spaces. So it'll be really exciting to speak to Tamina about um, about uh, her work. Um, she's a Merriam and Woodathy woman um, and uh, is able to speak with a little bit of experience uh, because she's created a, a web app. And so we'll oh, be speaking hmm. about the web app that deals with um, uh, important questions around access and identification and things like that. Cool. Um, so that's that's exciting. Uh, yeah, and then at eight fifteen. Yes, we're at eight fifteen. End of the show. At, at the end of the show, we have Dr. Jess Heard from University of Melbourne, who does some research, does a lot of research on homelessness in youth, um, and particularly looking at uh, violence. And she's just released some more research on that. Um, so we're going to have a chat with her about what's happening in that area. 
Fantastic. Sounds like a breakfast. Um, folks, stick around. <laughs> <laughs> breakfast show. <laughs> um, and uh, maybe whilst you're munching on some toast, stay tuned. Next mm. up is Alternative News. Some folks know about it, some don't. Some will learn to shout it, some won't. But sooner or later, baby, here's a ditty. Say you're gonna have to get right down to the real nitty-gritty. Let's get right down to the real nitty-gritty now. So, for Alternative News. Um, so, this is a story that just came out last night. So... In Portugal, they, the, the president of the National Statistics Institute has announced that the 2021 Portuguese census will not feature any question regarding race or ethnicity. So this decision was made despite this a working group, which was set up specifically for this purpose, to investigate this. And they stated that the question, that, that, that there should be a question on this to be introduced. Um, because they're saying that... Um, they argue that the question would have been a really fundamental instrument in terms of understanding and accessing all the information regarding ethnic racial inequalities in the country. And additionally, they even did a survey on the population and 84% said they would answer such a question. So it wasn't seeming like it was a, it was a contra, like people were behind having a question behind this. Yet it's decided not to, to be carried through. And so as a result, a lot of psychologists and campaigners have been criticizing the decision for obvious reasons. Um, some are saying that, you know, now Portugal's not going to continue to recognise that the country has all these diverse cultural backgrounds and it's not going to recognise that racism in both its individual institutional and structural manifestation still exists. Um, and there's a sociologist, Christina Rodal, who also highlights that there was a lack of political investment in the project with no steps really taken to broaden the debate to wider Portuguese society to create something that's a bit more participatory and sort of reflective um, of the populace. Um, and he also he has this great quote. He also notes that in the Noble Hall of the INE, which is like the, the statistics department, there were no, this is uh, it's a quote, there were no blacks or gypsies with decision-making power. The absence of ethnic racial representation is conspicuous. Today, the same ones have always decided decide um, that the same ones must wait to con- continue to wait invisibly. So there was no one there who would be influenced by this decision, who was actually making the decision. Um, so the statistics department in defense of not publishing the question has said that the question's not asked because the issue is complex, and they argue they didn't include the question because of a risk of institutionalizing ethnic racial categories, which is it's a bit of a disappointing answer. Um, well, it is a disappointing answer. Um, so because without any of this data, it's really hard to understand the size of the issue that they're dealing with, let alone understanding common themes um, and understanding sort of key causes. And without any information, you just have no idea what's going on. So, yeah, that's not a great outcome. Um, next story, it's kind of been brewing for a while, but it's kind of come to a tipping point recently. It's about, like, you've all known about the recycling China banning in 2007 and the mm-hmm. kind of flow-on effects from that. So what's happened as a result of that is that Southeast Asia has become kind of the dumping ground for recycling now. And so as a result, there's just kind of this chaos that's emerged because China was taking on so much, so they had the capacity and the systems. And now as a result, Southeast Asia has now become that new space and they just don't have the facilities anymore. And so it's just not being handled well. And so most of it's now either just being torched or just being left to pollute the environment. Mm. And now, rightly so, a lot of government, Southeast Asian governments are starting to ban the recycling imports because they just don't want to be seen as the dumping ground of the world. 
Um, so, like, for example, Malaysia has said they have, they've had enough and they're sending 3,000 tonnes of foreign plastic back to where it came from. Vietnam is banning plastic waste imports from 2021 onwards. And the Philippines is sending shipments all the way back to Canada. And it's partly because the recycling that's coming in is not very good quality, so they can't mm. really do anything with it. And so it's just like, I feel like almost calling this, like, it is kind of a crisis because A, nations aren't taking responsibility for their own waste and having the resilient systems for recycling. Because the kind of whole thing shows just how dependent we are on just one country for this one thing, which is just pretty critical. And now as a result, it's all uh, recycling is either getting burnt or ending up in the oceans. And it's just kind of showing the dangers of having a system that's so streamlined and not being resilient. Um and showing that for like these kind of issues, we need to have multiple ways of dealing with it. So, yeah, in, it continues evolving. It's been interesting to see over the last two years. But Yeah, quick question, Rob, because I was thinking about this the other day and I mean to ask you, do you think, I mean, obviously Australia has not been dealing with its recycling yeah. in a really, cl- do you think we have the resources or potential to be able to do that better? Like, should we be, should we see a huge investment in, you know, recycling? Well, the, the thing is, is that like a lot of the, in discussion, in discussion to the Southeast Asia Governments. A lot of people are saying like mm. they understand why they're returning, uh, turning it away. Yeah. But also, it makes a lot of sense to why you'd want to keep it if it's good quality, because you can yeah. export it as a product. Okay. So there is massive potential to make an industry out of it. You just have to have the resources to be able to set it up. And it's kind of like, well, if no one's taking it on, this might be a good time to start thinking about alternative industries. This could be not a Danny, exactly. but also jobs. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Like huge okay. jobs and continued jobs, because we're always mm. going to have plastic always waste. Going to need recycling. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. But yeah, that's that's alternative news for me. Nate, I have um, a few kind of community actions coming up. Um, so June's going to be very busy. Uh, so I thought I might just read you guys out uh, the details as they are coming up. I won't go into too much specific things. I imagine you can look them up if you're interested. But uh, especially coming up this Friday, there'll be a Extinction Rebellion uh, speak out. So uh, it's Melbourne speak out, no new coal, stop a dining climate emergency, kind of snap action. And that will be happening at 5.30 to 7 o'clock at the Burke Street Mall in Melbourne. If you're interested in going along, information is on uh, Facebook under Extinction Rebellion on their like their website. Furthermore, uh, on June the 22nd, there will be a March uh, for Justice for Courtney Heron and more and Violence Against Women. So this is kind of... Um, uh, March has been in the process of building mm. recently, but it's kind of protesting against the, the, the violence that we've seen uh, against Australian women forever, basically. Mm. But um, especially this year, just kind of bringing attention to the fact that we are seeing more and more women getting, you know, killed on the streets. And, um, yeah, just trying to, <laughs> trying to address this fact that there's this huge institutionalised violence against women mm. and the government's not doing much about it. So that will be going on from uh, 12 o'clock, so midday, to about 2 o'clock uh, in front of the State Library of Victoria and it's hosted by Change Make Her. Uh, so, yep, you can look that up again on Facebook if you are interested in attending it. The final one that I saw around the place is uh, on June the 28th, so coming up next week. Yeah, is that? Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, next week. Um will be abolished detainment facilities. This will be held at Victoria University, uh, City Flinders campus, and that's hosted by Detention Life and Support, and that will, again, be kind of advocating against uh, or, or, yeah, protesting against uh, especially youth detainment and kind of um, the harsh justice system, which we were talking about last week on the show, if you missed it. Um, So that would be a good one to listen back on and kind of get updated on the situation. But, um, yeah, that will be – that's kind of what's happening around the city. Yeah. Yeah, great. 
Alrighty, uh, so that's been alternative news. Uh, next up, we're going to be hearing from Indigenous Rights Radio uh, with a bit of an interview um, around the topic of Indigenous traditional knowledge systems and technologies being used to conserve and maintain local forests. Uh, let's have a bit of a listen in. Uh, this is Indigenous Rights Radio. Folks, don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. ...biodiversity conservation and poverty reduction using traditional knowledge says Donato Bumacas, one of the champions of the indigenous practices in the Philippines. Our work is actually uh, focused on biodiversity conservation and poverty reduction using traditional knowledge and indigenous knowledge systems. So most of our work actually uh, is focused on, let's say, sustainable indigenous people's agricultural technology, which is actually uh, anchored and based in our culture. So what we do there is we protect the forest. We have that V2 technology. In the forest, we actually uh, build holes for trapping animals. And at the same time, when you have that holes, cutting of trees is not allowed or any human activity is not allowed because of the holes. And in that way, the forest is actually being protected. And not only that, in, in terms of hunting animals, only the big ones are actually being hunted. We conserve the forest through that uh, technology. Talking to Cultural Survival Team, the Chief Executive Officer of Kalinga Mission for Indigenous Children and Youth Development Inc. Philippines, Donato Bumaka said that the communities are also conserving water sets through indigenous agroforestry system. We also conserve the watershed. And what we do in the watershed is actually we have this Pinagua system, Pinagua, this is actually an indigenous agroforestry system where we combine fruit trees and trees and including like bananas uh, in the watershed that actually protects our water. It's because it's very important in our life. Because the water, we bring it to our rice terraces, as you know, we are familiar with our rice terraces. And we call that ARA, ARA or Indigenous Communal, Communal Irrigation System. And then we bring the water from the watershed to the rice terraces. And as you know, our rice terraces is actually a uh, uh, whole package source of our livelihood. There is uh, fish, vegetables, and rice within the rice terraces because we don't use chemical fertilizers. That's why within the rice terraces we grew different, you know. It's actually integrated in the sense that there is fish, there, there are plants, and then there is rice. Conservation of forests and water sets has been sustained by the Kalinga indigenous communities from time immemorial. But due to increasing of commercialization and, and acculturations, the long-lasting indigenous system has been threatened. The communities are trying to revitalize and enhance its indigenous systems. This is actually a, like a cycle which is by, being sustained by our culture. This interrelationship of the forest and our livelihood is being sustained by our culture. So from one generation to generation, since time immemorial, we have been doing this. Unfortunately, with the, in, uh, with the intrusion of commercial uh, commercialization and acculturation, 
because of you know education, the religion, and etc. That system or cycle is being threatened. So what we did in our organization is to still enhance that, promote that, and at the same time uh, replicate it to other communities because this technology is this is an indigenous technology wherein it really conserves the forest, the watershed, and then at the same time it, it actually in, in, increased the production in the rice terraces. The Kalinga Indigenous Community was awarded an Ecuador Initiative Award in 2004 for using innovative approaches for biodiversity conservation and poverty reduction. Sustainable Indigenous People's Agricultural Technology. This actually won the, the uh, Equator Prize Award in 2004. I am the first winner in the Philippines. So when we won the award from that, from that time on, we, there are lots of organizations already who recognize our work and then who wanted to, uh, you know, to partner with us. Some communities were actually uh, requesting uh, our uh, technical assistance if we could share it to them. The conservation approaches that the community is using are not new. They are the part of their culture. Conservation. In our culture, it's actually part of our culture uh, to conserve. Because when you abuse, well, we have spiritual uh, inclination that when you abuse the environment, it will remove you from, from, the, from, the, from the environment. In short, if you abuse the environment, it will actually go back to you in a more very dangerous way. So in our culture, it's actually part of our culture that we should respect and we should conserve our forests, our watershed, and etc. Before cutting trees, we have to pray. If you cut one tree, you have to plant ten trees. That's a requirement. In fishing, we also get stone. Back. We we <laughs> we throw it to the river first before before going to fish. So I mean, conservation in, is actually take uh, had been a part of our culture. The conservation work is sustained only if members of all communities participate. These ways of involvement of all sections of society is something that can be learned from Kalinga Mission for Indigenous Children and Youth Development. One of our main goal really is to make this SIPAT generational. So by doing that, you need to involve the children and youth. So that's what we are doing. We, we actually uh, like what our forefathers had been doing who transferred this technology from generation to generation. We wanted the children in the process to be involved and participate so that in one way or another by being involved, they actually learn the, learn the practice. And we utilize the knowledge of our elders, we organize sessions in the schools, and then invite some elders and talk, talk in front of the schools, in, in the classroom, and share the knowledge. Beginning in one indigenous community in the 1980s, the indigenous methodologies and the practices of conservation now exist among 54 communities in northern Philippines. What is the secret behind the successful conservation of biodiversity? Donato says that the conservation is part of indigenous people's everyday culture. In our culture, land is life. Our 
we cannot live without land. With that in mind, our life is actually connected, all our activities is actually connected to land. So if land is threatened, our life is threatened, and we have no choice but to fight if that someone are, you know, threatened our life, threatened our life. And for how many years of existence we had been there without, you know, without any intervention from outside, and we were able to sustain our life. So all we need today is at least to bring in our perspective in the international level like this for them to also recognize what we have in, as indigenous peoples. Indigenous peoples have inseparable relations with land and forest. It is estimated that 80% of the world's flora and fauna are found in the areas where indigenous peoples have traditionally lived. The forest is not just the means of production and livelihood of indigenous peoples, but is also part of their collective identities, histories, knowledge, spiritual beliefs, and lifestyles. The land and the forest is their part of culture, thus they have important knowledge on how to preserve them. For more on indigenous rights, visit cs.org slash rights. It's not too late to the owner. It's not too late to the owner. It's not too late to donate to 3CR Radiothon 94198377 or check our website 3cr.org.au. Hey you, you who are listening, we haven't reached our target yet, but you can help us out. Log into our website 3cr.org.au or call us on 94198377 and give us some support. Help us keep running this radio for another year. We need you. G'day, my name is Margie Thorpe. You are listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 on your dial. Hmm... I think we should get this invention which sucks up all of the rubbish in the world and puts it in an intergalactic dimension. 2040 is the latest film by award-winning director Damon Camo and shows us a possible future we could have if we take on board all the best practice options available now to change our planet. Join the Out of the Blue team for a special fundraising screening of 2040 on Thursday, 20 June at the Nova Cinema in Carlton. To book tickets, Google 2040 Out of the Blue Radiothon Movie Fundraiser or find the event on our Facebook page on facebook.com slash outoftheblue. Come along to Cinema Nova with the Out of the Blue team for a drink, a fantastic documentary and help raise funds for Radiothon 2019. Thursday, 20 June, 8 p.m. at the Nova Cinema in Carlton. Please note, saving the world is not guaranteed, but having a great night is. Everywhere you look, you will see incredible reasons for hope. 
Good morning, everyone. You're listening to Wednesday Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio. It's just past 7.30, and we're here for our first interview of the morning. Uh, so the Migrant Workers Centre is a, uh, migrant workers in general are often at great risk, uh, risk of poor workplace conditions due to a number of factors and are sometimes unaware or unsure of how they can access help and assert their rights at work. And so enter the Migrant Workers Centre, which is based at the Victorian Trades Hall. Just tell us about the valuable work they do. Um, we have Marianne Tesson, uh, who is a digital organiser, and Hannah Parisa, who is an organiser as well at the Migrant Workers Centre. Um, welcome to 3CR. Thanks for joining oh, us. Thank you. Good morning. Thanks for coming in. Good morning. Good morning. Um, so, yeah, like I was saying before, workers across industries, all industries and across demographics are facing increased casualization, stagnant uh, wages, but people who are, are migrants and don't have um, certain securities that non-migrant workers have uh, face additional challenges in their workplace. Um, can you tell us a bit more about what makes migrant workers particularly vulnerable to poor workplace practices? I think one of the main thing is probably the language mm. because when you don't speak a fluent or easy English, sometimes bosses are just abusing you. Mm. And, yeah, the language is a big thing. And we speak a few languages at the Migrant Worker Center, and we're here to help them as well to understand that and understand what are their rights at work. Mm. Um, something else is, um, yeah, according to the country you're coming from, you don't have the same rights in the workplace. And some of them don't even know that, you know, rights are different in Australia. You have mm. the right to be to be covered by work cover, for example, or things like that. Mm. So just, the, yeah, language and knowing that you have rights is an important thing that I really have to know in the first place. Right. So there's there's a, like a fundamental stepping block, um, first, that you have to get past, just to recognise that there's a certain set of workplace expectations that, w- that workers can have in Australia and should have. Uh, also, I can add that, uh, unfortunately, the industries that migrant workers are in, um, th- the problem is that they are not unionised as the Australian-born workers. Mm-hmm. So migrant workers actually have a lot of problems to have access to union movement. And this is why we actually thought we should be existing in the heart of union movement, which is Trades Hall, to uh, talk to migrant communities and also uh, union movement that we need to uh, get them together. And the problem is that uh, when boss knows this workplace is not union place, so it's much easier for them to abuse and oppress the uh, voices that is against what they really want to hear. Mm. And so uh, do, do migrant workers have a tendency, those who have... Uh, um uh, who don't have the, the language skills, um, English language skills, that would a- enable them to learn more about their workplace. They tend to work in workplaces that are also uh, less unionised, or is that not the case? Yeah, 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 the, yeah. absolutely, absolutely. Mm. I, I myself have experience of working in a uh, big bakery in Broadmeadows mm. when 98% of the mm. workforce was migrant or refugees. And right. many times when we had issues, uh, the only thing boss uh, needed to use was that, oh, be careful about your visa. Oh, don't forget you're an asylum seeker. Yeah. Or like, you're a refugee. Oh, don't mm. forget about your immigration case. Yeah. So all these dirty threatening that the mm. bosses need uh, they know that how they can use it to kind of oppress and silence workers. And 
Actually, this example was from an injured worker mm. who was demanding. He knew uh, he is uh, entitled to Vokawa. Mm. And then the boss said, hey, <laughs> yeah, I know you can be covered by Vokawa, but just don't forget about your yeah. asylum seeker case. <laughs> yeah, so here we strike upon something that's particular to migrant workers, that um, people who have more stable visa conditions, mm -hmm. like citizens, for example, um, don't have to face is the the instability of their the visa situation. In particular, um, I was reading about people who are here on sponsorships for their company, and that can either be withdrawn by the company or the company can fold. Can we talk a bit more about that? Uh, yeah, sure. There are a lot of cases uh, in this uh, situation. Um, so many international students, when they finish their graduation, so they, they go and uh, find a job and they are sponsored by the boss. And this is actually the first reason they're going to be trapped in a situation that they cannot speak up. Mm. They, they see the problem. Uh, actually, uh, the first case that I had in Morgan Walker Center was for a person. Uh, she just finished her, uh, intern, uh, she just finished her master and then she started working in a, a place. And then because she was very scared and she was a sponsor, uh, she couldn't talk about the sexual abuse that she was facing. Um, at the end, Margaret Walker Center actually could uh, help her to mm. speak up and kind of push back the boss that, hey, you cannot abuse us only because our visa status is not as safe as other mm. uh, workers. Yeah. You can't divide us. Mm. It's Sorry. No, I wanted just to say that I think it's really important as well for them to know that they don't have to be shy. They can say what's happening to them, and that's something another, sometimes another issue they can face because, you know, you're, not, you're never proud to say I am sexually abused or I've been harassed, and it's very hard to talk about it, especially when you're in another country. You sometimes don't speak the language or just a little bit, and, yeah, it's another thing that they um, sometimes are scared to talk about. And we can't help if, you know, we don't know what's happening. So it's mm. very important to talk about it. Yeah. At the root of this, that also sounds like there is a, a cultural issue with local bosses. Really, oh, yeah. Um, that um, I'm just thinking back to um, the, the 457 visa saga and other ways in which migrant workers have been used as a, a, a boogeyman or a stick to to scare local workers, yes. uh, to, to scare non-migrant workers. Yes. Um, how, how does this impact on the way in which um, migrant workers are treated in the workplace, but also how they interact with, for example, union movement or other things like that? Well, uh, the bosses like to divide us, mm. and they can use any tool to make it happen. The easiest one is, unfortunately, racism. How, how they using... Uh, Aussie jobs against migrant workers' jobs and all this stuff that we're already aware of. So this also goes to workplace, and they see each other as not uh, a united front against the boss. They see each other against each other. Mm. So uh, this is actually one of the important jobs that union has to do and make sure uh, they can stop seeing each other as enemies. Um, we need to be together. Um, mm. If we, our workplace doesn't have a HSR or delegate, this is the issue. It's not that I speak another language or my religion is different. It's not the issue. Uh, it's not going to affect 
my health and uh, safety in workplace, <laughs> yeah. that it's going to be fixed by another way. So mm -hmm. the only way is that let's have a HSR. Mm -hmm. So whoever knows better than me or whoever cares more than me, that person should be HSR. doesn't matter which gender, which religion, which language they speak. So this is our job to uh, train workers to tell them you should be together to be a stronger against mm. the bigger enemy. <laughs> yeah, and that's the work of the, uh, the Migrant Workers Centre. Can I ask you um, to, to tell us a bit about the... Uh, the way that the Migrant Workers Centre operates. I had the I had the misapprehension before that it wasn't a union, but it, it does sort of take on that role, but there are also services involved. Can you tell us about these two functions? Yeah, sure. So um, my understanding of what I'm doing is that uh, we do deliver some services because we believe um, in some situation you need to help mm. to lift up the community and then... Um, to, to being together to organize ourselves. Mm. So we need to some level of empowerment. Mm. We need to know our, our rights at workplace and in Australia because there are some differences. For example, I'm from Iran um, and the, uh, I knew that I'm entitled to vote cover but at the same time I didn't know how to access to this mm. and the boss knew this is the best situation so he can avoid me to know anything. And it did happen for one year I didn't apply for my um, work cover. So I think uh, what Migrant Workers Centers is doing is that trying to help workers, trying mm. to tell them this is the rights you are entitled to, this is your union, mm. where do you work, explaining of the union and how they can help you, mm. and trying to make a bridge between the uh, marginalized migrant communities and union movement mm -hmm. and trying to explain also for union movement, this is a situation happening, we need your help. Because we are from the community. We know what's happening in the community and we can use this platform, this space, to introduce this problem to the people that they know how to fight for it. It's not just helping, it's yeah. also together fight for something better in, for all of us. Mm. Okay. Um, and so uh, that, that's quite, quite a lot of different things that the Migrant Workers Centre um, has, has to do as part of its work. Um, if people are listening to this and they want to either connect people in their workplaces to the Migrant Workers Centre or if they themselves don't really know how to interact with the union movement and they need, need some help, um, in particular with language stuff, um, how can they get in touch with the Migrant Workers Centre? Social media? Social media. Yeah. Okay. We're always on Facebook. It's very easy to mm -hmm. contact us. You'd just be looking for Migrant Workers Centre on Facebook. Yes. Um, otherwise, uh, you folks do have a, a website as well, which is migrantworkers.org.au. Yes. Uh, and you have contact details on the website as yeah, well. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Um, now, there aren't uh, any particular events or anything coming up, but if uh, so it's really just people uh, reaching out to the Migrant Workers Centre that we hope to see. Is that right? Um, we also reach out to migrant uh, workers' communities. We also go and deliver our Know Your Rights sessions and explain what... For example, what is superannuation? Mm. What is, um, uh, you know, um, public holidays, how it's going to make a difference? All mm. this stuff we go and we explain for communities and we talk about unions. Wonderful. Um, sounds, like, sounds like great work. If you folks want to reach out again to the Migrant Workers Centre, you can go to migrantworkers.org.au. Otherwise, just search Migrant Workers Centre on uh 
on Facebook. Facebook. Yeah. Um, I imagine um, you, you folks also have a, a workspace up at the Victorian Trades Hall. So if you have yes. contacts with the Victorian Trades Hall, just reach out to them. Yes. They'll point you in the right direction. I've been speaking to Marianne Tesson and Hannah Parisa, um, both organisers at the Migrant Worker Centre. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Cool. Thanks. You're listening to 3CR. Uh, stay tuned. We've got some great interviews coming up. This is Ari Lecker. You're here on 3CR 855 AM Community Radio. Also streaming on 3cr.org.au. Free West Papua, Papua Merdeka gets up one talks. And you're listening to 3CR. Now, for our next kind of interview, we're going to be talking about the RCEP. But what does that stand for? That is the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, which is a bit of a mouthful and is also <laughs> a proposed trade agreement which is currently under negotiations within the uh, kind of Asia region. So it was created by ASEAN. Uh, and kind of Australia is one of the participating parties that kind of are in these negotiations and are discussing these free trade agreements made under the proposal. But we have uh, Dr. Patricia uh, on the line, Governor of the Fair Trade and Investment Network, uh, to kind of discuss the finer issues with the negotiations and perhaps the, the problems that, we're not, that are not being currently reported. Good morning, Pat. Good morning. <coughs> Good morning. So um, just as part of this discussion, um, you're the, the, the Fair Trade and Investment Network of Australia have organised a forum and protests surrounding this issue, which we'll make sure we cover the details right at the end of the interview. But for the moment, um, this, from reading kind of up about the RACEP, it sounds very similar to the WTO. Could you just kind of give us the distinction of what, what this agreement aims to do in, the, in terms of kind of like trade agreements and liberalising of trade? Well, <clears throat> it's a bit different from the WTO because the WTO is 164 countries mm. and um, has agreements which cover all of those countries. This is a regional agreement and um, it's quite big because it has India, China, Japan, um, South Korea, the 10 ASEAN countries, which includes Indonesia and other big countries in ASEAN, plus Australia and New Zealand. So 16 countries, half of the world's population, 30% of global GDP. So it is a big agreement. But these regional agreements uh, aim to go further than WTO agreements. So it's more mm -hmm. like the TPP, which was uh, originally 12 countries, now 11 countries. And its agenda is very much a corporate agenda. So it's not really just about reducing tariffs or taxes on imports. It's about giving more legal rights to corporations so they can have a, a framework of legal uh, uh, agreements or rules that actually suit them in terms of their global investments and their global value chains. The problem is that that framework often um, is at the expense of people's rights, of rights of governments to regulate or of um, the environment. So that's what we're concerned about. We don't want the RCEP to be another TPP. Um, um, absolutely. And so the, the next round of negotiations, it's still going on, it's not completed yet, mm -hmm. it's going to be in Melbourne at the end of the month and that's when we're having the public forum and the protest. Okay, so putting basically putting big business first. Um, so the Australian Fair Trade and Investment Network uh, that you're from, kind of, am I right in believing that it was created kind of in response to the RACP and kind of these trade agreements? Well, not. It's nearly 20 years old, so it's been going for a while. <laughs> a bit longer it's, than that. It's okay. Created because 
mm-hmm. we believe that trade agreements should not they should be based on human rights, labour rights and environmental sustainability right. and they shouldn't prevent governments from regulating in the public interest. They shouldn't be just about corporate rights um, and they shouldn't reduce people's rights. So um, for, I'll give you an example. Mm-hmm. Um, the RCEP, like the TPP, has a provision in it that says that if you're a foreign investor, you can have additional legal, legal rights to bypass the national court system of that of whatever country you're investing in and sue the government for millions of dollars in mm. an international tribunal if you can argue that something, a law or policy, ha- um, has harmed or will harm your investment. Now, the classic example we have here is the Philip Morris Tobacco Company mm. using an obscure Hong Kong investment agreement to through the Australian government over our plain packaging legislation. Um, But there are lots of other examples where um, mining companies have sued governments over environmental regulation of mining, um, where uh, pharmaceutical companies have sued governments because uh, they didn't agree with a decision of a court which refused them a monopoly over a medicine because the court argued the medicine wasn't sufficiently different from other medicines to deserve a monopoly. Um, there are lots of... Gov- there's even a case where the government of Egypt was sued because of a contract dispute um, by Veolia, which is a waste disposal company, but part of the compensation they claimed was for a rise in the minimum wage. So you can see that... Um, Governments can be sued over domestic mm. law, which um, are, um, have to do with health, the environment, um, in some cases indigenous land rights as well, or even uh, a rise in the minimum wage. Now, we believe that you don't need to give extra legal rights to foreign corporations that mm. already have enormous market power. So that's one big thing. Another area is medicine monopolies. Mm-hmm. Um, Pharmaceutical companies have been using these trade agreements to get longer monopolies on medicines, which means that um, they already have 20 years when they invent a new medicine to charge a very high price, but if it's extended, it means it delays the availability of cheaper medicines. We don't think trade agreements should be used to um, extend monopolies. That's Mm. the opposite of free trade and competition. Um, in the RCEP, there are also proposals to um, increase the numbers of temporary uh, workers, migrant workers. Um, and again, um, we support permanent migration and the rights of people to come to Australia. But with temporary migrant workers, they're extremely vulnerable because they're tied to one employer when they come here. And you must have know, must know that there have been numerous examples of terrible exploitation mm. of these workers. Um, and so we oppose the idea of extending that scheme without having proper safeguards to prevent exploitation. Yeah, um, I, see what, I see what you mean with this discussion because it's not just deregulation or liberalisation of trade. It really is removing a lot of workers' protections and uh, state power and that sort of stuff on the on the... Well, uh, on the our stage, and I suppose, as as you mentioned before, these countries together create the world, almost the world's largest economic block. Um, how is this going to kind of affect it? Like, will we see the rise of big business 
kind of supplanting governments within this area. I mean, you, you've kind of been saying that throughout. Do you, do you think that's really is a complete inevitability with this agreement? Well, I don't think they completely supplant governments, mm. but what they do is give more rights to business, mm. which we don't think they need because they already have a lot already of have it, yeah. power. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the things about the RCP is that there is a big range of countries involved. So um, you have Australia, New Zealand, South Korea and Japan who are the ones pushing some of the more corporate demands. And then you have countries like India... Indonesia, to some extent China, mm. although China's ambiguous on some of these issues because they yeah. also have giant corporations, mm. um, have been resisting some of these um, issues about, say, medicines or mm. um, corporate rights to sue governments. So uh, the negotiations have been going on for a long time, since 2012. Yeah. Um, so um, that's why we think it's very important when they take place in um, Melbourne that um, we give some um, voice back, to yeah. those people who are saying to our government, don't agree to these bad proposals in the RCP, say no to um, giving more rights to corporations um, and to undermining human rights and the environment. Absolutely. And looking at the forums, I mean, you've got academics there, people from uh, non-government organisations and non-for-profits. This is covering a wide uh, group of issues and people. Um, what do you think the average Australian needs to be concerned about? Obviously, this is combining a whole lot of interest groups who have specific uh, concerns about the regional trade agreement kind of thing. What do you think? Why, why do you think the average Australian needs to be tuned in? Because this is something that, uh, as mentioned, it's not really big in the news. We haven't really heard much about it. I mean, it was very hard to scrounge up details for this interview alone. So, yeah. yeah well, well, uh, one of the other things we... <clears throat> Our campaigning against is the secrecy yeah, of negotiations absolutely. because we know that they take place and there's some um, we get some information about what is being discussed but we don't see the text which is what you really need to see mm. in these sorts of things to know what the legal meaning is so the text is secret and we mm. don't see the whole final agreement until after it's been agreed by government so we're campaigning uh, for release of the text while they're negotiating and certainly release of the final text and independent evaluation of it before mm. it's signed, not not just seeing it after the deal is done. Um, so, um, again, this is another thing that we want to make people aware of. I think everyone should be concerned about the secrecy and the fact that we don't see it until after the deal is done. I think the issue about medicines is a key one because yeah. um, people are concerned if they think that um, medicines are going to have high prices for longer mm. and um, it, that costs our um, pharmaceutical benefit scheme an enormous amount of money. Um, there have been studies done on that that show it would cost hundreds of millions of dollars a year if um, the monopolies are extended. And um, also um, the whole area of workers' rights, um, mm. this agreement has no provisions at all for either workers' rights or um, for um, environmental um, uh, taking any notice of, of agreed environmental provisions uh, like Paris Agreement, for example, yeah. or other international environment agreements. So um, we would argue that all trade agreements should have enforceable provisions to yeah. protect workers' rights and to protect the environment. Uh, and I suppose so it's also emphasising Australia's part in pushing this more corporate agenda 
and kind of calling our own uh, accountability. That's right. Mm. And if you look at particular groups like women, um, they're particularly disadvantaged. Um, if you look at where women are in the workforce and um, the um, inequities they suffer already, mm. um, then having um, provisions in trade agreements which mean that there'll be less rights for workers generally impact particularly on women. So um, there's another um, section of the agreement which deals with what they call trade in services, which um, is really about opening up um, all kinds of services to foreign investment. Mm. And um, although it doesn't force governments to privatise, it makes it very difficult for, if a privatisation fails, for governments to take, to re-regulate that sector or take it back into public ownership. So if you look at the mess we've had with a vocational education that uh, was exposed several years ago where it, it was privatised, there was terrible fraud. Absolutely. People didn't get the courses they were supposed to get, etc. Yeah. Even the Conservative government had to re-regulate in that sector. Um, but um, these agreements make it very difficult because what they say is if you open up something to private investment, then there's what they call a ratchet clause, which means that you can't kind of take it back. Absolutely. <laughs> um, so that's another area that affects a lot of people's lives. Now, these will all be being discussed uh, in the forum you're holding on the 1st of July from 6.30 to 8.30, and that's at the Victoria Trades Hall, is that correct? That's right. And it's just for members, anyone from the public who is kind of concerned about yes, this and would like yes, to discuss it's free this? and uh, anyone can come. Absolutely. And then also just double-checking, there will be a public rally then the day after on Tuesday, the 2nd of July from 12.30 to 1.30. And you're just really encouraging, as I said, just anyone and everyone? Yes, everyone's welcome. Um, the rally will be held outside the convention centre, which is where the negotiations are taking place, and it will, people will meet at the Pollywood side ship. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Pat, for kind of coming on today and giving us a little bit of an insight into this kind of hushed-up negotiations. Um, yeah. Well, thank you. And if people want more information, they can go to our website, which is aftinet.org, and there's also Facebook events for those two events. Absolutely. We'll make, sure, we'll make sure to put it in our rundown. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. So again, get along to the old concrete gang and your radio from pull-up for 3CR Radio, Monday, July the 8th, 11am onwards at the Albion Hotel, uh, which is now known as the Northport Hotel at 146 Evan Street, Port Melbourne. $20 entry, and that gets you in the door, a feed, listen to Phil Parra, one of the greatest bands going around, and a chance to win a $500 door prize. Be there or be square. See you then. You're listening to Wednesday Breakfast. Uh, the time right now is just past 8.01. Uh, alrighty, so um, on the line I have uh, Tamina Pitt, who is a computer engineering student at UNSW, um, and she's also a Merriam and Wootathie woman um, who's coming on the show today to talk a bit about um, First Nations self-determination in online spaces and what that means, and also a bit about her work. Um, Tamina, how are you? I'm good, thanks. Thanks, hey. thanks for joining us on 3CI. I know that you're calling us from, I believe, Gadigal land, unless you're on the move. Uh, no, I live on Bidjigal country, Bidjigal. so that's in the eastern suburb of ah, Sydney. I see. Okay. Well, thanks, thanks for calling in. 
so uh, we have had people on the show um, on 3CR Breakfast talking um, in a bit more detail about uh, sovereignty and self-determination and what that means for First Nations people. If you want to hear Dr. Crystal McKinnon, a Yamaji woman and Indigenous Research Fellow, talk about that on Tuesday Breakfast Summer School. Go back and listen to that in our specials. But today we're talking in particular about digital and online spaces. So um, can, can we please get an idea of um, what self-determination means just in general, but also, um, in particular, in an online space, uh, what what is meant by the, the word self-determination? Yeah, sure. So I guess I started off my... So I've been doing my undergraduate thesis, and I started off looking at um, collections and collecting institutions. Um, often collecting institutions are, you know, created um, with... Particularly for First Nations collections, there's objects, stories, and photographs that were taken... Um, during colonisation and are now analysed from the white gaze. So um, this kind of has an impact on the, the perceptions of First Nations people. Um, and also, I think, because the collections, we have no ownership or control over that, um, it kind of limits the First Nations' control over the way that we're perceived in things like collecting institutions. And then that would have flow-on effects to academia. So I think the idea of self-determination is it's having control over our own perception and um, having control over our representation and um, collections that are concerning us. Mm. And so in, in an online context, um, a lot of information... I mean, increasingly we're seeing the commercialisation of, um, of materials as being a way of sort of sequestering um, information and limiting access. That's that's definitely one avenue that's been taken quite a lot. But otherwise, information tends to be freely available in a way that isn't necessarily appropriate for um, for First Nations people. Um, can you tell us a bit more about the importance of access? Yeah, so I think um, the digital space offers the, offers the opportunity for the view to be flipped. So um, on spaces like Facebook, you can kind of represent your own perspective. Um, so I think that that really helps. Um, but then also um, there are still cultural protocols about controlling who can access certain materials, which I think um, a, a customised approach might be more appropriate there. Mm. Can we get an idea of um, just an example for our non-Indigenous listeners of what that might mean? Um, so, for example, some... Indigenous um, or First Nations cultural expressions are, they could be gendered or um, based on um, your age or status within a community or also just restricted to a community. So there's, it depends on the type of knowledge. Mm, definitely. And so that's embedded in um, self-determination is that the, uh, the, the First Nations community in question will have uh, control over how that knowledge is released to certain, certain viewers. Is that right? Yeah, and that's right. And I think compared to um, a collecting institution that might not have access to this cultural protocol, um, we can use, I think looking at ways that we can use the digital space to instead use those, um, use, like follow cultural guidelines and be more appropriate for First Nations knowledge. Mm. Uh, it seems like we've got two different, um, well, not different, they're definitely uh, intimately linked, but two different uh, concerns when it comes to 
First Nations self-determination online. One of them is the treatment of materials and um, the treatment of, of knowledge and its, um, its access, but also the way that things are delivered and other sort of caveats on that. But on the other hand, there's also social media and interactions between people, if, uh, if that um, makes any sense. Is there, is there something in, in that social realm that, uh, that you find um, uh, platforms that already exist aren't, aren't doing that would better suit the ways that First Nations people communicate? Yeah, I was inspired by um, social media and Facebook. There's a, a high proportion of First Nations people are users of social media compared to the rest of the population. So I think there's benefits there with the self-representation. Um, we can tell our own story, which compares to um, the collection or, um, you know, some media, Sunrise having an all-white panel talking about Aboriginal issues. So I think um, there's benefits there. But then if we can, there's also, um, you know, cons. There's, you know, racism experience in the online spaces, which can be quite bad. Um, and there's also um, community guidelines that are not quite a, the same for First Nations people. For example, I looked at an example where um, uh, an Aboriginal woman was painted up and bare-breasted and that image was shown on Facebook and then that image was taken down. So where that would be, you know, culturally appropriate for her community, it was taken down from the online space. Mm. And so there we come across an issue where a, a certain platform isn't able to um, be uh, maintain a sort of culturally appropriate atmosphere um, and set of guidelines for First Nations people. When we talk about um, social media platforms, we usually talk about Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, um, but the, the way that you're able to interact with these is very different. For example, Twitter tends to be quite a public open forum, whereas Facebook, you can go person to person. There are open groups, but also closed groups. Um, how, how would you compare and contrast the ways in which First Nations people are able to um, interact with these different mainstream platforms? Um, oh, that's an interesting question. Yeah, I think um, I've seen that Facebook has been used for connecting families together, um, and some, especially the research I was looking at also suggested that um, if a First Nations person if it was stolen, then they're able to reconnect with their family through Facebook. There's examples of that. Um, and Twitter seems to be used for activism as well and organising. Mm, true. I feel like maybe it's just the algorithm at work, but at least 80% of my Twitter feed is just um, fantastic black activists, <laughs> which is um, really, really great. But it's also very much focused towards activism Although there is community, I, I imagine that's, there's a bit more of that on Facebook. But what remains to be, um, t uh, what, what's left to be desired on these on these platforms? Because I know that you've you worked on a on a web application that takes a social media type format, but that sort of implies that there's something missing, is there? Yeah. So I kind of focused a lot on um, First Nations people having ownership and control of their own material. So that meant. Um, creating a collection that is for us and putting the gaze of the white collecting institution. Um, so that involves... Um, so it's basically the... I've made an application that will allow First Nations people to upload their own content and they can control who can access it and kind of um, who... Um, who um, sorry, they can control their own self-representation as well. 
Mm. And so what does this mean in a sort of, um, I know you didn't really work on the user interface, you're more on the, the back end sort of uh, deep computer engineering stuff that I wouldn't yeah. understand at all. But um, what, what does that mean if I were to approach this? Um, so from two different perspectives, if you're a First Nations person and you approach this, um, this web application, uh, how does it um, get grant you access or ensure that you're um, culturally appropriate to, to view certain materials? So I've tried to add in functions that would kind of allow people to organise their, their content to be accessed by people that are appropriately allowed to. Um, and I think that would give um, a sense of safety to a First Nations person in knowing that this application is designed to protect their interests um, and give them a sense of trust. Mm. And so, so from the other hand, if you weren't from within the community or a, you're a settler, you, you can't access this information unless it's released to you by people within the community. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. Mm. Okay. Um, well, it sounds really, really interesting. I, I hope to hear more about this um, this project as it develops. Um, so, uh, yeah, do you, do you have any um, further thoughts on, on the opportunities that social media and digital spaces offer to First Nations people um, in asserting their own laws? I think I'd be interested in, if I continued this research, looking at ways that we can collaborate with people in First Nations communities more, because this was just led by myself and my research. Um, it would be really interesting to collaborate with people and look at ways that this could integrate um, the structures of First Nations knowledge and what that looks like and how it's connected to um, land and people and trying to kind of look at how that might translate into the digital space. Mm. Um, but that definitely would be a lot more work. Yes, sounds like it. Um, so if, if people are interested in learning more about um, the, the, the ways in which uh, collecting institutions um, deal with and have, uh, should deal with um, uh, Indigenous um, and First Nations knowledge, um, something that you recommended to me was um, a paper by Martin Nakata and, and, and others called Indigenous Digital Collections. It was a paper from 2008. Do you do you have any other, other places that people should go look for, to learn a bit yeah. more about this? Um, Museums and Galleries Australia actually just released their roadmap for um, collaboration with First Nations people in the museum and collecting institution space. So I think that might be a really interesting paper to read. Um, and that kind of makes recommendations for how collecting institutions can collaborate with First Nations people. Hmm. Wonderful. Well, this has been really interesting. I feel like we could um, talk a bit more in depth and talk for hours about um, about First Nations self-determination online. It was um, really great to speak to you today, Tamina. Um, I've been speaking to Tamina Pitt, who is a computer engineering student at UNSW, a Merriam and Waterthy woman, and um, has been joining us on 3CR this morning. Uh, Tamina, thank you so much for coming on air. Thanks so much. Thanks. You're listening to Wednesday Breakfast. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. Wondering how you pay your donation to the 3CR Radiothon? Well, you can do so online at www.3cr.org.au. 
or call us with your credit card details on 03-9419-8377. You can also come into the station at 21 Smith Street Fitzroy during office hours and pay by cash, cheque or FPOS. Or simply post your cheque or money order to P.O. Box 1277 Collingwood 3066 and be sure to tell us which program you'd like your donation to go to. So on the line we have Dr Jess Hurd, who's a research fellow at the University of Melbourne, who's researching youth homelessness and the intersection with violence. Um, just a trigger warning also for this interview, it will cover topics such as homelessness, abuse and violence, so if that does bring up anything, um, Lifeline are available on 13 11 14. Um, but on the line we have Jess. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. Um, so firstly, just sort of as like a general overview, what's the, the scale of the issue that we're seeing here in terms of youth homelessness and sort of what are the kind of current issues that are developing? Yeah, so we know um, about 15% of young people uh, 12 to 24 years old experience some form of homelessness. Um, and I think it's important to say when we um, talk about homelessness, um, particularly in this research, we're not just talking about young people who... Um, are rough sleeping. We're also talking about young people who are in crisis accommodation or might be couch surfing, staying with friends, um, you know, that sort of, you know, type of homelessness where young people are not directly living on the streets um, but you know, don't have a place to call home. And so am I correct in saying that um, the rough sleeping that we see is actually only a small part of the, the overall picture? Um, look, it's, it's a small part of the overall picture, yes, but it's also um, an important part of the overall picture. Absolutely. Um, I think, you know, regardless of a young person's homelessness status, they're still at risk and they're still experiencing quite substantial vulnerability and, and disadvantage. So I think it's important that we, you know, really look at homelessness as a, a holistic issue, um, you know, and also recognise that there are specific groups of young people within that um, homelessness term. Absolutely. Um, in terms of your current research, it's investigating homelessness as an outcome of a series of factors in adolescence. What are you finding out of through that research and what are the, sort of the more recent factors that have been emerging? Yeah, so I'm um, kind of looking at two different um, streams in that um, what we're trying to do is really look at what are the, what are the things that are happening in young people's lives um, from early on in adolescence that might influence their homelessness, ex- homelessness experience later on. Um, but then also recognising that there are a substantial number of people who are homeless, um, what's happening to them while they're experiencing that. Um, and what we're, we're seeing on the, I guess, the early front is that you know, within family environments, these young people have experienced um, conflict with family members. They might have experienced some sort of childhood abuse. Um, but then we also see factors across other um, domains of influence. So, you know, we can say that things like school um, failure or disengagement from school um, are coming out as potential influencing factors, um, problems within peer relationships, young people feeling disconnected from their community. Um, these are things that, you know, we're starting to show are influencing the likelihood that young people may or may not experience homelessness down the track. Um, and then I guess, you know, where um, the the current research um, that's just been published is at is what's happening to these young people and really what's coming out of that is 
while these young people are experiencing homelessness, they're also experiencing a substantial amount of violence. Yeah, I was going to... That, that's your sort of... your more. Re- more recent research and interviews has been investigating that. Um, what is what are the, sort of the key sort of findings from the interviews that you've had with a lot of young people on the streets? Yeah, so we've interviewed uh, around 60 young people. Um, those young people are all from um, Melbourne and aged up to about 24 um, years old. And look, what we're seeing with that is um, young people are not only experiencing a great deal of victimisation as a result of other people's violence while they're homeless, um, but they're also forced to engage in you know, what I would call lower-level violence um, or those types of behaviours in order to ensure their own survival and protect themselves. Mm. And, is, and I guess how is this constant sort of reality of facing violence affecting um, their ability to access services or sort of various other issues? How is it sort of affecting their sort of daily routines? Yeah, well, I think uh, I think the important thing to, to kind of say is that the engagement um, in violence among this this group of young people is not um, as any sort of disregard for you know social laws or um, social norms around behaviour. Um, it's really about how do they ensure their own survival, and that might be things like how do they gain food, um, how do they access or maintain some sort of safety in whatever shelter that they have, um, how do they protect themselves from other um, other groups of people in society, and that might be other people experiencing homelessness, but also those not experiencing homelessness. So it's quite a, I guess, a broad issue, mm-hmm. um, but a serious one that we need to kind of think about, particularly given that these young people have already experienced quite substantial, you know, trauma and disadvantage prior to their homelessness experience. Mm, absolutely. And I mean, in your research, you're also saying that a lot of uh these youth, they also, when they're speaking to health professionals, they face a lot of stigma as well? Yeah, absolutely, and I think that's, um, that's a really strong thing that's come out of the work that we're doing at the moment. Um, young people, you know, I guess recognising a need to seek assistance but not feeling like they're able to do that um, based on reactions that they've had from health professionals in the past. Um, and that might be... Um, you know, around blame, um, that might be around um, shame and stigma. Um, it's quite a broad issue that, it, you know, sadly a lot of young people are talking about when they're talking to us. Mm, and so that's affecting their ability to access these services or wanting to access the services? Uh, well, it's, it's affecting their ability to, to really, I guess, not access services, but also be honest with mm. the um, health professionals that, are trying to provide assistance. And I think um, one of the, the, I guess, forms of frustration for young people has been um, focusing, when they um, seek assistance, just focusing on one particular presenting issue rather than homelessness as a whole and what that entails. And certainly, um, you know, violence and injury that young people might have sustained is part of that. Mm, absolutely. Um, if there are some of our listeners who are experiencing these kinds of situations, where should they go in in your experience? Yeah, so there are a number of um, different organisations that you know, people can go to. Um, for instance, the Salvation Army, Melbourne City Mission, um, White Lion, Front Yard Youth Services, um, they all have specific streams that work with young people directly. Um, so, uh, you know, it's, I don't want to kind of say, look, you know, go to this place because I, I don't want to overload, um, you know, one specific mm. organisation, but there are definitely multiple organisations out there that can assist um, young people in need.
Yeah, great. And then finally, in what ways can our listeners help support um, this situation as well? Yeah, well, I think it's really about um, acceptance, acceptance and it's about creating an understanding. So, you know, really recognising that um, these are young people who have had to become independent you know, very early on in their lives, um, often through no fault of their own. They've experienced some, um, you know, things that other people haven't experienced that have forced them to kind of go, look, I need to, you know, look after myself. Um, and, you know, and it's really... Yeah, acknowledging that, you know, this is an issue, um, acknowledging that young, these young people are not, um, violent, they're not dangerous, um, it's, it's really about these young people are, are really working to survive and protect themselves and if there's anything that young people, that others can do to, to help that and I guess reduce the stigma and the shame, then that's been beneficial. Yeah, exactly. We're all kind of in it together. Um, <laughs> Well, just heard. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, really appreciate all the all the research you've been doing, and hopefully, get you on in the studio uh, in the near future as well. Yeah, no worries. Sounds good. Thanks very much. So that was Dr. Jess Heard. She's a researcher at the University of Melbourne. I was just going to say, um, we had some people on a while ago talking about youth homeless, and they brought up the social initiative HOMIE, which is H O M I E. Um, just for listeners, if you're interested, I thought it was a different way of supporting this cause. Um, it's a little clothing brand, and 100% of their profits go towards people, youth experiencing homelessness issues, uh, and it, it provides training and, you know, kind of job opportunities, like helping to get young people into jobs and that mm. sort of stuff. Mm. So anyway, I think that's have, a different way. They have an outlet store on Brunswick They have an outlet Street. store just on Brunswick Street near yeah. us, yeah. Now, um, you probably, now, you weren't probably expecting, expecting this, but I've got a very impromptu... Uh, numbers game. <laughs> um, so I've only actually got one question for play with the numbers today. Okay. Um, this is the number. Are you ready? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 819.04. Ooh. Do we get a hint? 819. It's, it, it feels like it's a money figure. Does it? Yeah. I don't Ooh, know. I don't okay. know. The point oh four. I feel yeah. like. That's true, but it doesn't feel large enough. You know what I no. mean? No. Mm. Could be larger. Is it how much it costs per individual? Per individual for would what? It be like, I don't know, but would it be per individual? Well, um, you're listening to Wednesday Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio, and it uh. wouldn't be Wednesday Breakfast without um, you folks at home and your support. Mm. $819.04 <laughs> is it. what we raised during our, um, our Radiothon show including online takings, and that is so good. Oh, wow. Oh, my God, that was too loud. Uh, I'm so sorry, everyone. <laughs> Shows our enthusiasm. Um, yeah, it does, though. Um, so that's the... We, you know that we have a target of $1,000, and mm-hmm. so during our, our one show, that's not bad. We've only mm. got to make another $180.96, mm. um, which, you know, like considering one of our donors was a bit more than that much, um, that's that's totally doable. We could do that in Absolutely. the next few shows. I really I hope someone sends in a, a donation that ends in a dot .96 as well. Oh, I think that would be great. Please do. <laughs> make a nice make round number. Oh, can you please do that? <laughs> Just like 96 cents. Yeah, we'll make it $2.96 because mm. any donation over $2.00. Mm. Gets you a tax refund. I just want to say thank you so much to the people who called in during last week's show, um, the people who went online to 3cr.org.au slash donate, mm. and the people who texted in as well, and I'll give you the numbers in a moment, but the, just um, to the people who already uh, donated to us, thank you so much. Like, it just shows that you value the work that we do, but also the work that 3CR in general does um, 
in our community for, you know, providing really interesting stories and mm. voices and um, things you don't hear on the mainstream media and powering radical radio, which is our theme for Radiothon. <laughs> Radiothon is technically over. It went from the 3rd to the 16th of June. Um, but our donation lines never closed, to be honest, um, because we're always in need of money and we didn't quite make our target. Um, so yeah, if you, if you want to, um, obviously not call in because we don't have anyone in the phone room, but <laughs> if you want to text in 0488809855, that's 0488809855. Just text in your name, uh, the show that you want to dedicate some, some cash to and, um, the, the amount that you'd like to, to chuck our way and mm. we can um, we can organize a, a tax receipt for you as well um, and and all that sort of thing otherwise you can turn it to to the studio at 21 Smith Street um, in Fitzroy slash Collingwood people say Fitzroy or Collingwood um, we're on the border Fitzroy. Mm. we're actually in Fitzroy. we're actually <laughs> on the Fitzroy side of the road yeah. but if you donate it to Collingwood we'll still get it to be honest and you can call in uh, during our hours 9 to 5 so not quite yet but mm. in half an hour mm-hmm. on 94198377 um, so that was just 94198377 our receptionists still have the uh, donation forms mm-hmm. yeah that's another way of doing it yeah. if you feel like it yes and I also believe the online still yeah. available. Yes. Yeah. So if you're on the everything's in- still going basically. Everything's still going. <laughs> That's right. So you can go online at 3cr.org.au/donate. That's 3cr.org.au/donate. Yes. Um, now, obviously, we won't be um, banging on about receiving donations from you every show. It's just because this is the show after Radiothon. Um, you notice that we didn't mention anything during the show. Mm. So much, <laughs> apart from those little community service <laughs> announcements. Um, and we do thank you so much for the people who, like, I, again, I say, um, people who already donated. Um, you know, $800 is nothing to sneeze at for certain. Like, mm. it's a lot of money. And so yeah. um, thank you for donating that. It, it is tax refundable as well. Huge thank you also. Um, as we are a bunch of volunteers, yeah. one, one of the coolest things about 3CI is you come in here as a fan. So mm. there's a whole lot of... Um, different presenters of, with their own shows who uh-huh. donated to different shows uh-huh. and I'd just like to say a huge thank you to the people who from other breakfasts who supported yeah. breakfast mm. um, I know I, I, I pledge my money to City Limits and Community Mixdown yeah. because there's just there's so many different shows and it's lovely that um, as a station we actually pitch in all towards supporting each other mm, we do absolutely um, so yeah I, I suppose that lead us, leads us fittingly to um, our final final thing for the show we're grateful for what we're grateful <laughs> for um, yeah, Ivan, do you want to start us off? What are you grateful for? Yeah, sure. For? I am so grateful for lip balm. I've yeah. just recently <laughs> discovered it, and because of winter, my lips are splitting. So, mm. thank you, lip balm. You've been so great. <laughs> <laughs> How about you, Rob? I'm I'm grateful for the smell of a book when you when you get a book and you smell oh. it and you just like there's like there's knowledge here. <laughs> it's 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 like you're, you're trying to acquire it, not through osmosis but through smelling. But it's, it's not quite. The, <laughs> yeah, and they have different smells depending on how old the book yeah. is as well, and like, the different papers. Ooh, yeah. okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. There's so. a connoisseur associate there to be developed, <laughs> isn't there? It's like get wine tasting. <laughs> yeah, book, book tasting. Yeah, <laughs> book <laughs> could definitely be something. Um, what am I grateful for? What are you I'm, grateful? I'm grateful for um, sort of really interesting guests. Like today, I feel like we've spoken in particular to people who are like directly involved in the in the things that they have expertise in. Uh, Tamina Pitt was a really great interview today, and I, I th- really think people should listen back to that interview if they get a chance. Um, otherwise. Uh, Oh yeah, I'm also grateful for the really cool design on the uh, on those um, 
three CR radical radio patches. Mm. Like this sounds like a plug. It totally is. But also like they're ten dollars each and they look really cool. It's like a kind of yellow disc that you can sew onto your bag or your clothing or you can iron it on. And it says Radical Radio 3CR, and that looks like one of our vintage, um, mm. vintage icons uh, designs on there, because it's it looks it's kind of like a what is that? It's like a transition transmission tower, but it's got lightning coming from it. Um, I like to think of it making the yeah. <laughs> yes noise, <laughs> but safely, yes, but safely. safely, yeah, um, spreading happy vibes. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so we're coming up to 8.30. That means the end of our show. Mm. Uh, we didn't get to the weather, so I suppose we're going to just have to let you fend for yourselves. It was kind of cold. <laughs> it's, kind of, it's kind of cold this morning. It, it's probably going to rain, Good to luck. be honest. So you know what to expect. Uh, you're listening to uh, 3CR Community Radio. Uh, next up, we have Stick Together. Have a lovely Wednesday. Bye. See you next week. 3CR relies on the support of ethical organisations to keep our vital community of voices on air. And we'd like to thank our breakfast supporters, the new international bookshop, Nibs, at Trades Hall. You can check them out at nibs.org.au. And if you'd like more information on how your organisation can become a 3CR supporter, contact the station on 03-9419-8377. Did you enjoy listening to that podcast? Here at 3CR, we're a community radio station, and you're part of that. Right now is Radiothon when we ask our community to pitch in with a few dollars that can help keep media in the hands of our community. This year, we need to raise $250,000 to keep the station on air. Any amount that you can afford makes a big difference. And it's really easy to donate. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash donate. Your support is greatly appreciated and helps us power radical podcasts for yet another year. Thanks, as always, for listening.